Hello and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, we are joined by Tom Rogan. He is a national security writer at the Washington Examiner and uh, one of the finest national security reporters I've come across, particularly on a subject that is very dear to my heart, as listeners of this program will know, and that is the GRU. It's great to have you on, Tom, and I wanted you on now. We will absolutely have you back on in future, but now especially because you've done two very important stories uh, that I think deserve more attention. One is on the much scandalized allegation of the GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence service, paying uh, bounties to the Taliban and other Islamist insurgents in Afghanistan to murder American, British, NATO soldiers. And you had what I thought was the best anatomy of the CIA assessment of this. And, and we're going to unpack the politicization of this story and sort of the kind of debate that's happening in the media, but also internally within the IC in just a moment. But the other story you've also done, which is now getting quite a bit of attention, is on the allegations of perhaps the GRU, perhaps other malign actors using uh, directed energy technology to uh, harass and actually cause quite grievous brain damage to a host of American and international figures, one of the most prominent being Mark Polymeropoulos, former director of European operations at CIA, who's been on the show before, who was stationed in Moscow and has suffered quite a, a trauma and ordeal because of these, um, these uh, alleged attacks. So Tom, welcome. And let's start with the bounty story, because I've had multiple guests on this show to kind of try to get to the bottom of what's going on here. And, and as I mentioned, I mean, this has turned into a kind of party political shouting match. And there's a lot of noise that I, I, I want to sort of move aside, as it were, and just kind of get to the heart of the issue. So the original story as broken by the New York Times many months ago, was that there is a credible allegation within the US intelligence community, albeit one that is of varying degrees of certainty or confidence, that this has actually taken place, that GRU Unit 29155, which is this rather hyperactive smirsh type assassination and sabotage squad, was indeed suborning jihadists, Islamists in Afghanistan to, to kill NATO soldiers. Now, explain what it is that you've done with your reporting, particularly focused on the CIA aspect of this assessment. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I think the first point to note with this story is that obviously it has become, as you suggest, very, very political in terms of domestic politics and you know the Trump administration. So what I tried to do was just to, to go and to get the best possible idea of why did the CIA have a really more moderate confidence level and versus NSA really being the diluting aspect in terms of the overall assessment. And I think the first point to note is that the the NSA doesn't have the kind of evidence that it believes it should have in terms of being able to to bolster the credibility of the CIA's original reporting. And as an extension to that, you know, the NSA really is so good at getting the Russians, even when they uh, think it would be sort of impossible to be got by the NSA. The NSA's ability to to really take a hard line there, I think, is perhaps not as well understood. I think sometimes people, you know, and, and myself before had this idea that perhaps the NSA, because, you know, the Russians would be operationally secure more than perhaps they usually would be in terms of how they discussed this topic, uh, moved physically in terms of the action of this project were it to have happened, NSA would have got something 
gold on them. And I just think that NSA has reason, I think, and experience to say that it would do it. But in terms of the specific CIA side, you know, there is the elements that had been previously reported by the New York Times in terms of obviously de- detainee interrogations, financial flows between the GRU and intermediaries, partly in Pakistan, I'd heard as well. And, the, and again, the New York Times was the first to report that. But I'd also heard that the CIA's assessment was m- m- more heavily weighted than commonly understood towards uh, agent reporting outside of the Taliban. And you know, I want to be sort of careful here in terms of the you know, my, my sources, what they told me, but some good reporting from reliable agents to that made the CIA say, ah, you know, this perhaps makes us more, you know, moves us up the attribution chain uh, rather than keeps us sort of static at low to moderate. And and I do think there are, even now in CIA, there were those who wanted, because of some of that agent reporting, uh, to push it up even higher, uh, but certainly to the degree that this is not a non-story and at a minimum deserves deserves the sort of credibility of continued investigation. And I think as just one final point there, as one source said to me, you know, note that the White House, when it was doing its sort of first battery round of sanctions, did reference it, although reference it without saying, and that to this person was an important point. Well, and so I mean, I have to ask you this, and I, I think it's 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 rather obvious, even in the the artful way you if there's agent reporting involved that's not coming from the Taliban side. Because remember, the, the original dodginess factor of this story was people saying, oh, well, this is all based on, on detainee interrogations and detainee interrogations are notoriously unreliable. People make things up, especially if they're under any kind of duress or, or they've been coerced. But I mean, I'm given to believe, and, and I, I read your story carefully, that th- there is a very strong likelihood that US intelligence has got agents on the Russian side, which is to say that the GRU is a leaky ship. You know, that certainly wouldn't be the first time in Cold War history or even post-Cold War history of that being the case. I mean, famously, Sergei Skripal was a GR defector to MI6. Russians work for the opposition all the time. That in itself would be a rather blockbuster disclosure and would also highlight how the U.S. government has been able to anatomize Unit 29155 to such a detailed degree. I mean, you'll, you'll recall that the first big mainstream media story about this unit was also in the New York Times, naming their commander, giving operational details. Other stuff has come to light, uh, particularly in international press, uh, their their famous um, mountain hideaway or, or command HQ in the French Alps. Right. You know, I so I, this is something that's that's I've been sort of obsessed with is how do we know so much apart from the sort of open source or, you know, sort of open source plus, as, as it might be better termed, forensic reporting that Christo Grozev at Bellingcat has done. Clearly, there is penetration. Right. And I, I mean, I find that absolutely fascinating. Right. I would, again, I, you know, I did. I'm not asking you, by the way, to, to reveal Obviously. your sourcing or anything like that. I just, this is a very logical. Re- yeah. So in the broad, you know, on, you know, Russia's side, there is reporting. I think beyond that, I couldn't really sort of go further. But, you know, th- this is not just a, I think because of the sense sensitivities of the story and the, you know, again, the attribution requirements, you know, Mr. Taliban, you know, would not be sufficient at all to, to make more of this. Well, right. I mean, indeed, you know, it, it never made any sense that the, t- the Taliban would be able to identify Unit right. 29155. <laughs> I don't think they have, you know, sort of ID cards that say. Right. And I, I think as well that, the, you know, the New York Times has to get 
you know, you've, Michael, been extremely kind to me in terms of uh, tweeting my pieces and, and obviously having me on your show. And I think sometimes, the, you know, that isn't the case with with kind of the national security reportage world. But but again, the New York Times was the first to report the specific, you know, intelligence linking the that, that game playing unit. But but again, so I, I, I think, you know, yes, yeah. this this is top line it is a really serious concern. And, you know, this is also, you know, it's been very frustrating to see the misinformation and the distortion, some of it perhaps in bad faith. No, not perhaps. I mean, absolutely in bad faith to serve a a kind of ideological agenda. But other, you know, much of it just kind of grounded in, yeah, there's been no sanctions. Therefore, it's it's debunked. I mean, this this hasn't been debunked. And and the way that intelligence collection is, as you no doubt know, I mean, the, the way it proceeds is it's it's. It's a very tricky thing, isn't it? I mean, no American spies say with 100% certainty they have to make judgments based on the available evidence. And as you pointed out, I mean, you know, the NSA, if they don't have intercepts, if they don't have the copper bottom documentary evidence, the, the phone call or the SMS messages or whatever, it just simply didn't happen. They don't believe right. it, right? CIA, though, runs human, you know, intelligence assets all the time and they get to know these sources. And, and if these sources have proved to be reliable and credible in the past, they take what they say very, very seriously. You know, there's no doubt there are case officers there who know the people that they're running and or handling quite well. And if they're saying, no, indeed, we, we've been given marching orders to pay Taliban insurgents to basically rack up American body bags, that's not going to be dismissed. That is going to be taken quite seriously. Right. And, the agent. and, and one final point, you know, I think probably I should have noted is that part of the human reporting on this is, or at least was so sensitive that it was there was a quite significant delay with it being shared into five eyes and so you know we are not if we think about the level of sharing that goes on there that gives a good indication i think that again there are obviously you know very good reasons for caution but there are also exigent reasons uh, to motivate source protection yeah i was just going to say at the, at the very moment of the new york times reporting on this I queried three Western intelligence services who I've relied upon for doing research for my book on the GRU, and all of them came back and said it's true. No doubt you've gone down these rabbit holes before with other stories. I find that very, very rare for them to, to you know, three different services to come and say, we agree with the CIA assessment on this without any kind of hedging right. or dubiety in, in, in what they had to say. So yeah, this always struck me as a story with, with legs. And, and just on a final point, you know, we had uh, Christo Grozev on the show last week, and he had been quite skeptical of this. As he put it, the disclosures coming out of the Czech Republic and Bulgaria, right. where Unit 29155 has now been accused with evidence of having conducted sabotage operations, blowing up facilities, in one case in the Czech Republic, killing two innocent Czech uh, citizens. He thinks, look, if they're, if they're doing this kind of thing on NATO soil, they're absolutely capable and willing to go after American soldiers by proxy in a 20-year-old war zone. Right. I listened to that episode and I thought his, you know, he really is one of the leading um, people on this. And yeah, I think you've been kind of interrogating the subject with your various guests very well. Yeah. Well, so let's move on then to your your other big uh, exclusive. And I, I know, unfortunately, other media outlets have billed their reporting as the exclusive, but you, you were there first on the directed energy attack. So first of all, like, what do we know? I've read several articles on this, but I haven't really dug into the, the sort of technological capability or, or even the possibility of this kind of weapon being used. What do we know about these mystery systems and, and how they work? Yeah. So, and, and just the first thing to note, you know, I had a little bit of a 
perhaps undue temper tantrum. Politico were the first to report that it has been now brought to the intelligence committees. But I sort of felt, anyway, it's irrelevant. It's it's important subject. So what do we know? Well, we know, first of all, that the Russians have had a long-standing interest, operational activity involving radio frequency weapons. And as one person told me, which I think is very apt, you know, don't try and be a scientist when you're explaining this. Just keep to the fundamental level that, that using the electromagnetic spectrum to as a force of weapon at, at, at levels along that spectrum, right? Projecting energy, essentially, as the top line. The Russians have been quite open, uh, I think, more than, quite frankly, in, in the same way that I know you, you, you know, You've talked about with other guests the shoddy operational security we sometimes see. I think there's been a shoddiness in terms of what they have publicly disclosed, you know, including in the last 10 years in terms of, um, and I reference in the pieces, the Russian army, an article on their website, the Russian government gazette referencing this and how the special services are so skilled at weaponizing this kind of uh, capability. Mm. But as I understand it as well, the real sort of development in the last few years has been both an uptick in terms of suspected uh, attacks on US personnel, uh, which I think is obviously quite commonly reported, but but also significant developments in terms of the operational capability itself, uh, specifically the ability to use the platform platforms, plural, in different ways, including possibly, and I want to emphasize possibly here, because frankly, I couldn't get the kind of, you know, source build up that we would wish, but but possibly even a, a person to person use, someone being able to carry the weapon on their physical person. I, I know you said you don't want to try and sound like a scientist about this, but how does it actually affect one's brain? I mean, how, how, did, how do these systems of radio wave technology, how does it sort of create this sort of trauma. I, I suppose it, it, it can't be all that different from, you know, sort of how we use x-ray technology to peer inside someone's body. But I mean, it, surely there's kind of a, a, a layman explanation for how this sort of thing gets weaponized. Yeah. So I think I think the basic point would be that it's, it's, it's affecting the central nervous system by bombarding someone with a saturation. And, and this is really an important point that the weapon does have is believed to have various, you know, power levels, for example, that you can right. choose at what, and, and that the effects will be commensurate with that power level. But basically you're turning someone's locale, whether that be their apartment, their, their you know, the, the environment around them on the street, et cetera, into a microwave and sort of bombarding them basically. I mean, sort of putting them in, you know, effectively a microwave and that you, all the effects that go with that, that I guess the, the major difference would be that instead of it sort of being, you know, radiation uh, or radioactive in, in terms of that, you know, yeah. that manner that it's affecting uh, the central nervous system. That That's what, you know, I, I keep coming back to is that that central nervous system effects. And then, you know, but, but the, the, the top line here, I think in terms of the seriousness is that in multiple situations, the government officers who are believed to have been targeted, you know, kids have started having nosebleeds. Right. And so this, the, just the brutality of the action, I think, is uh, really why people behind the scenes are so, you know, again, it crosses, as I say in the piece, it crosses the Rubicon, even by the Russian standards of the rules of the game. And now let's be clear. I mean, I remember the, the first reporting on this came out of Cuba, right? Or it was it was um, American diplomats in Havana were experiencing these strange neurological symptoms. And so where where exactly have these cases turned up? I mean, there's been Cuba, obviously Russia, because that's where Mark Polymeropoulos was stationed in Moscow when he started complaining of these th the headaches and so on. Uh, where else in the world? 
Yeah, so there have been reports that it has happened uh, domestically. You know, I just don't have anything on that. I'm not to say that it hasn't. And, and frankly, I think it's possible that it has. You know, I do know one concern actually on the domestic front is that because the FBI's counterintelligence apparatus has under the Trump administration, I think in many ways quite justifiably was moved much more to a China focus, Yeah, uh, that the Russia house teams are, are less resourced. So there is greater freedom of action for Russian intelligence officers. Though in terms of where it's happened, I think the original place, again, uh, really, we go back to 1996, uh, Mike Beck and a colleague in Russia, and the locale hadn't previously be, been reported, but in my piece that I do identify it as Russia, uh, that that was a sort of test bunny exercise that probably, likely, the Vladimir Putin or Petrushev, someone at the, the senior level in terms of the national security architecture in 2016 authorized the escalation movement. But so if we think uh, credibly, Russia, Cuba, obviously, the, around the world, other places, Eastern Europe is a standout location, I'm told, especially more recently, uh -huh. uh, places where the Russians have both operational presence and more importantly, and I think this will be a, a, something, you know, I wanted to get more on it in the piece, but quite frankly, wasn't able to, places where the Russians are uh, given space to operate by host nation counterintelligence services. And there really is trend lines developing there that I think will be more useful in terms of the sort of synergy between NSA and CIA, again, being the, the you know, familiar leading collectors on, on Russia in terms of data and, and then the kind of more human sort of present stuff that, you know, Eastern Europe, I think we were going to hear more and more about in the coming months as a place where the Russians have tried to, to, to do this. You know, just to use sort of past behavior as a, a way of of, of trying to map attribution on this. I mean, I've not seen, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, the, the Chinese military intelligence service or Chinese intelligence services writ large tend not to conduct any kind of kinetic operations against Americans in this way. I mean, I suppose, you know, other states or Iran might, might if they, they had the technology, but it seems a bit too sophisticated for them. So Russia seems to be the country that, that most people are pointing the finger at with respect to the use of this device. And if it were any Russian service responsible, odds on bet that it would be the GRU as opposed to the FSB or the yeah. SBR. I mean, just, I mean, the FSB doesn't really operate outside of Russia, except in its, its so-called near abroad in Georgia. And, and, you know, I mean, they've been known to do assassinations such as uh, the Zellenheim Kongeshvili murder in Berlin, but they're not really going after American intelligence officers or diplomats. Yeah, Ju Julia Yoff, in her piece, The Immaculate Concussion, did sort of note that there is, I, I do think there is actually, quite frankly, some evidence of FSB operations beyond near Russia, perhaps because the Russians see it as more uh, deniable, you know, in, in the sort of vein of the Litvinenko hit in, in, in London, right, that, that, that they have the former sort of FSB guys. But in terms of GRU specifically, popping up on the metadata in terms of proximity where uh, US persons then say, look, I've, I've suffered these symptoms. And then when they go back through the, the, the mainframes and dredge out data, oh, look, why the GRU, you know, popping up around here. And again, GCHQ being, I think, pretty important to some of the reporting on that or some of the intelligence on that specific to this issue. But also, the going back to that China point, I had two very good, really very, very good sources say there really is no evidence of the Chinese doing this. They've been firing lasers in cockpits in East Africa against American air crews, and I believe in the South China Sea, but not 
this specific concern and that in the China incidents in Guangzhou, I'm going to pronounce that wrong, the evidence there, you know, again, points to GRU versus China and that the Chinese really there was nothing on the Chinese. Yeah. And those two sources were very uh, confident about that sort of China. No, this is not China. And I mean, you know, we, we haven't really got into the severity of the, um, the health effects. I mean, you know, Polymeropoulos had to retire from CIA because of the deleterious um, neurological disorder that he had right. developed as a result of this. And then there was this kind of bureaucratic wrangle within CIA, certainly while Trump was still president about, you know, whether those affected from the agency are entitled to the best health care the agency ought to provide for these sort of things. And, and I know that, that Bill Burns, the new CIA director, is taking this quite seriously. It's bizarre, too, because, you know, this kind of thing, when you try to explain it to the uninitiated, it, it seems like something out of a Bond movie, right? Right. Nefarious Russians using ray guns to scramble people's cerebral cortex. But I mean, it does seem like there is a technological capacity for developing this. I, there was a story, I believe, in Foreign Policy by Cheryl Rofer, who cast doubt on the, the science behind this and says that these things sort of don't exist and it would be very difficult to put it all together. I mean, what in your reporting uh, do you know in terms of like, I mean, I know you, you, you alluded earlier to the Russians being quite transparent in their scientific development, but, you know, R&D does not necessarily mean you've created it, right? So what, what do we know about the existence of these devices? Have they been documented anywhere in the world? Well, I did, as I understand it, CIA knows the Russians have these devices. Mm. The doubt level is where they can put Russian X in you know, across the way from American Y. Right. On the, in terms of China, a source did say, and I, you know, I have to predicate it is, it is one source, but, but a, a government source told me that there is a specific R radio frequency evidence from the China incidents that is being built into the you know intelligence picture on this. And that, so that would come under massent or mascent analysis, um, which is one of the more sort of complicated, quite frankly, sort of, you know, technical areas. But there is evidence that would fit with the understanding of how these weapons work and that Russia has them. And I do know as well that that in, again, Guangzhou, where, the, where some of the reports had come from in China, you know, just outside Hong Kong, the GRU presence there is that they have a, a significant operational presence there. I think the the final point as well, as a top line thing that, you know, just to give people a takeaway, a government source did tell me that the way to look at how the Russians are believed to be doing this is the GRU's attempted hack into the OPCW in the Netherlands in, 2000, in The Hague in 2018. Yeah. The, the tradecraft employed there, small teams kind of in and out in some situations, well, the tradecraft employed there was was quite poor because the, the operatives that they sent uh, liaised directly with the embassy in the Netherlands and was, were actually met by a Russian diplomat. So, I mean, it was game over the minute they, they touched down. I interviewed an AIBD. Right, because GCHQ had ha hacked them all. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, but I see what you mean. So, in other words, these are close access operations where they have operatives in place wielding these devices or they travel to the countries they want to wield them in. The embassy is probably handing them off. Yeah. You know, because obviously they do not want to be caught. I also think, you know, importantly, that one of the challenges here is that, and I'm sure you, you've sort of found this, that that's, I think people, of course, there have been, you know, significant mistakes 
mistakes, intelligence failures, Iraq, for example, but that actually now that to get up to high confidence uh, in the US intelligence community, you really are dealing with a very, very high likelihood. And, and one of the issues here again with NSA is that at least as I understand, I mean, I may well be, but as I understand, there isn't the sort of dead to rights intelligence that can't be written off as the Russians just saying something because they think they're being listened to, which they do a lot, right. I think more than people realize. And then secondly, you know, there is very good metadata of GRU officers in proximity to people who then come and say, this has happened. But again, you know, that doesn't get you to that conclusion point, because maybe that GRU person is just trying to do, you know, recruitment approach or is surveillance or whatever. And so right. I think it fits the Russians, I do think have been unusually kind of crafty here. I think they've overplayed their hand, though, with too many incidents. I think one one final point, then I'll you know shut up, is that the I think there's a sort of a bit of a, a watch and wait here uh, to see how the Biden administration responds. And I, and I have to say that I, I do think, you know, with this colonial pipeline hack, the Russians will be quite pleasantly surprised how comfortable the Biden administration was to write that off as nothing to do with Russia, even though the FSP gives a free hand to those to organizations. So, you know, oper- operating yeah. in the deniable space has been politically viable for the Russians here in a way that I think it should not have been. Well, indeed. And I mean, if you're going to escalate against the United States, you know, I, I remember this was several years ago, querying a, a Western intelligence officer and saying, look, you know, in, in, in the history of the GRU is a hundred year old organization. Has there ever been a case where they've gone after an American. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about liquidating agents who have defected or were thinking of defected. I'm talking about like attacking American civilians or, you know, even um, political figures. And he said, no, he said that would be, that would be sort of crossing the Rubicon. So if you're, if you're going to sort of start playing around with that kind of escalatory mindset, the way to do it would be exactly like this, right? You're not killing Americans. You're just causing grievous bodily harm and long-term health complications using, in this case, a, an invisible weapon, literally. I mean, talk about the deniability of it all. Um, yeah, and, and what is your read on the colonial pipeline hack? Because I mean, I've, I've talked to cybersecurity experts who say, actually, in this, this instance, this does look to have been a Russian criminal organization. However, asterisk, given the permissibility of these rogue elements uh, in the Russian Federation and, and their kind of on again, off again relationships with the services. And you mentioned the FSB, the, the Russian government absolutely bears responsibility for allowing these kind of elements to, to proliferate. So at the end of the day, it might not have been a Russian intelligence operation, but Russian intelligence has sort of fostered the perpetrating party here. Is that your read as well? Yeah. And, and just two quick points, which I, I apologize, I admitted, Michael, you know, on the uh, RF attacks, Mike Beck, again, that 96 NSA gentleman and his colleague, Parkinson's disease that really Kemp Ensor, who was the NA, um, NSA counterintelligence chief, believed uh, was a result of this weapons. Also, some of the Pentagon folks who've been hit more recently by this abroad, I'm told a very bad way. And that the Pentagon, that predicated really uh, Chris Miller to want to, wanna, you know, I can't go into more details. There was a much more uh, robust interest on the part of some Pentagon elements to perhaps to take a different approach to the issue than some of the civilian intelligence community. In terms of colonial pipeline, yeah, I mean that. My understanding is is the the same as as you've outlined there that 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 the FSB in particular, you know, will use these guys um, on a sort of ad hoc, uh, deniable basis, and in return, uh, they are given relative free reign to just don't do it against 
Russian interests or Russian allies. One thing that really sort of pinged a kind of bell for me, and, and you know, I reached out to someone and said, bingo, is the the fact that when stuff started getting shut down and, and there was the disruption, they came out, Darkside came out with this, you know, almost apology saying, well, we didn't want to disrupt. That sort of seemed like, you know, someone in Moscow is saying, you guys overplayed your hand here. We yeah. do not, because we know that the US knows that we tolerate you. We don't want to be held accountable. But unfortunately, I think I think the White House just sort of said, well, you know, you're on your own, pay the $5 million fine. All's well that ends well for for the hackers and for Russia. So I, I really, I think this is a really, probably the most serious foreign policy mistake the Biden administration has made thus far. So in, in, to your mind, they should have either kept quiet and built a more uh, comprehensive assessment of who was responsible or what, come out and pointed the, the finger at Russia directly? As I understand it, there's enough evidence to know that, that how the line of control works, that the FSB you know, knows who the people are in these groups, knows where they are, allows them to sort of operate without interdiction. And we should have said, you know, you've got two options here, either extradite them and we, you know, and then we build the intelligence picture to show that these are, you know, the real people who did it, or you face, you know, American reprisals against Kremlin proper. Do either of those things. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is a a, a sort of debate roiling within this administration as, as, as far as I'm given to understand that, look, you know, a Biden campaign very hawkishly against Russia, uh, there's not going to be a reset, although there is going to be this weird summit taking place right. to try and normalize relations. But, you know, look, there is also a very growing sentiment at the National Security Council that the real issue here is China and it's not Russia. Russia is a nuisance. I mean, it's almost like you know, they're reverting to the status quo ante of, of the early Obama era minus the reset, right? We seek to have a transactional relationship with Russia. You know, yeah, they're bothersome and, and meddlesome, but, you know, we can sort of handle it. They're not a, a superpower in the making, unlike China, which is where we really have to put most of our attention. So in that sense, it doesn't really surprise me that there's this kind of instinct to de-escalate, at least in terms of, of rhetoric. But I mean, look, bringing this full circle, if it can be really established, I'm actually amazed that there has been more reporting done on the GRU bounty story, because um, I thought the minute that you know, Charlie Savage and the New York Times went public with that, um, everybody was just going to clam up. But instead, the needle has moved in terms of the level of detail. And I mean, there was your piece showing the five pillars of the CIA assessment, one of which, as we discussed, was built on human sources, not from the Taliban side, wink, wink. Right. More will come to light about what GRU Unit 29155 has got up to um, in the in the not so distant past. I mean, in, in the last seven years, obviously, you know, the, the explosion in the Czech Republic took place in 2014. And as Christo Grozev said on the on the show the other uh, week, if you look at the metadata in terms of the the telephony and the, the the travel itinerary of the known operatives of this unit, he's got clarity on only about fifteen percent of what operations they got up to. Right. So in other words, eighty five percent of the time where they're traveling through Western or Eastern Europe or Central Asia, we don't know yet what they did. So things that might have looked accidental, uh, heart attacks, buildings going up in flames that might have been attributed to electrical failure could have actually been acts of foul play, 
conducted by this this unit. And again, the next couple of months and years, I think we're going to, you know, you and I will be having this conversation quite a lot. <laughs> right. And I think there's probably some very good NSA and GCHQ evidence that, that you know, Christo obviously doesn't have that further kind of, you know, at least at that ten, tangential level, you know, says weird, bad stuff seems to happen when these guys are running around. No, I think you're right. I wonder how much as well in a sort of defense of the Biden administration, there is a sort of patient game here in the sense that if we look at, for example, the German uh, federal elections coming up in September, and again, I'm going to do the, the pronunciation wrong, but but the Green Party leader, Annalena Baerbock, you know, it, it has said Nord Stream 2 cannot be acceptable. You know, Ukraine represents a pivotal moment. Uh, much tougher on China than the CDU. Whether the Biden administration is sort of thinking, well, maybe we play our cards when that shifts in a few months, that the political landscape with the allies becomes more conducive. I I do think as well, though, and I'm sure you've heard this, that the British have been, were disappointed by the Trump administration sort of reticence to to take perhaps a, a a tougher line at the operational level against the GRU in particular. Yeah. You know, CIA was able to do quite a lot unless it sort of got up to that top level of authorization because then Trump had his idea about, you know, the persistent detente with Putin was the friend in waiting. Right. It's sort of, and I don't want to sound too conspiratorial here, but it is quite interesting. You know, you had these back to back disclosures in Czech Republic, Bulgaria. GRU operations dating back more than five years each, right? All to do with sabotage, acts of state terrorism. Let's be quite blunt about it. And I, you know, I'm doing a piece now on why was there such a muted response in terms of NATO solidarity and, and the expulsion of, of Russian intelligence officers from Western capitals in reaction to the, the Czech disclosures. And you know, a lot of this has to do with the internal political disarray of, of the Czech uh, establishment. I mean, you've got a, the, the president, Milos Zemin, who's in effect, I mean, a Kremlin agent who, who doubts right. the conclusions of his own intelligence service, famously said that maybe the poison that was used to try and kill the Skripals came from a Czech lab. I mean, you know, the guy makes Donald Trump look like the second coming of Winston Churchill. Uh, and yet, isn't it interesting, the Czech intel- counterintelligence services have done more to combat Russian influence peddling in the Czech Republic than the entirety of the elite political establishment. I mean, as a result of this, you know, announcement that this this ammunitions depot was blown up by the GRU, a very controversial Russian state tender for a nuclear power plant has now been scuttled. Right. Right. As has the uh, attempt to try and acquire Sputnik V vaccines from Moscow. So right now, pro-Russian sentiment is is trading at an all-time low in Prague. Uh, because of of the domestic blowback from these disclosures. So in other words, you know, if the the game plan is among NATO services, yes, let's let's start going public with what we know, not just unit 29155, but the GRU or other Russian uh, malign actors have got up to over the past 10 years. This is going to recalibrate the way certainly some of the squishier or wobblier European allies behave toward Moscow. Now, if it doesn't scuttle Nord Stream 2, it's going to do other things. It's going to give ballast to the kind of Green Party, you know, anti-Kremlin sentiment and at the expense of, you know, German Ostpolitik and, and whatever kind of lingering um, putin Wichter elements there are in, in Berlin. Again, I think we, we are in for not just 
from a national security perspective, disclosures that make yours and my eyes pop out of our heads, but also a geopolitical recalibration as a result of those disclosures. Yes. And and I do, I think that's, you know, certainly on the, you know, the radio frequency issue, I think the British will have stuff to say once the US gets to, you know, a, an assessment position. And then secondly, I think, I do think one of the challenges here, one of the requirements, certainly for, for you know, people studying this issue, is to point out just how I would say truly awful uh, Chancellor Merkel has been in terms of countering yeah. the Russians. I mean, the Biden administration. I do think actually I should have given them, quite frankly, more credit when I read about this when it first when the sanctions battery came out. The administration sort of buried it, but it was there to see. Essentially, explicitly said these two or three corporate cutouts in. I mean, they explicitly said it in Germany are GRU, mm. part of the GRU chemical weapons network. They're, they're operating freely. Uh, and, you know, on, how on earth has someone not said, has, you know, the White House not said to Chancellor Merkel, this is just not, this is utterly intolerable. Well, you, in addition to that, Vladimir Yakunin, the former head of Russian Railways, a KGB officer, in effect, I mean, a, an agent of influence for the Kremlin, has his dialogue of civilizations think tank, which is essentially, I mean, a fifth column, active in Berlin, as has now my friend Yevgeny Prigozhin, the catering magnate who got up to all kinds of fun in 2016 and beyond and is now deployed Russian mercenaries all throughout the world. He's setting up these fronts, Russian influence peddling schemes under the guise of discussing the circular economy or the post-COVID European landscape all headquartered in Berlin. Right, right, right. So you're absolutely right. I mean, Germany has become ground zero for Russian interference uh, and with impunity. German counterintelligence is quite good, but they are hobbled by the political establishment. So, uh, you know, again, you you saw, by the way, in that Biden sanction suite, attribution for the murder of Zelenheim Kangashvili to the GRU. It took place in, in central Berlin. Right, in a park. Yeah. Park, yeah, in broad daylight. So, you know, if, if Capital City has become a playground for Mokroidiello, I mean, you've got a real problem on your hands, you know, and you, you, you really need to kind of clean house. But yeah, I mean, we, we could do a whole other episode. In fact, we have done other episodes on, on Angela Merkel and the German response uh, to Russian naughtiness. But listen, Tom, I, it was great to have you on. You must come back. I have to confess, I didn't know you were British. I figured you were an American writing for the Washington Examiner. So that, that probably explains the, the subtlety and cleverness with which you apply your national security trade. Because I always found British reporting on this stuff to be much better than American reporting. That's my self-hatred at play, but... That's very kind of you. I mean, I, I'm actually a dual citizen. So my father was in the State Department for a few years when I was very young. So I have the, I guess I got both sides of the coin. But I also, you know, I think it is important to say that there are, you know, that, you know, yourself and others who've really sort of done the dotting the I's and cross the T's. You know, I I, th- I still think I'm sort of at a, a developmental stage in terms of, you know, because there's more, right, you know, dancing a, around the edges of some of this stuff is there's a journalistic cost to that, right? That there's there's an information cost to that. What what you can even if that's what the the sources requirements are for you, right. I want to do better, right? So I, I think you've been very kind to me, but I get that there's a limit to it, right? That I have to, I have, you know, you've got to be, keep pushing and, and becoming. I've got to become better. Well, I mean, you you can always become better on my show. We'll have you back. All right. Well, thank you the next scoop that you have. Tom Rogan, it's been a pleasure in listening to Foreign Office. This is Michael Weiss, and we will see you next time.